a question for you to ponder this morning. <clears throat> I don't want an answer. I just want you to think about it. What is the only command that God ever gave that man obeyed? Just think about it. What is the only command <clears throat> that a God ever gave in the Bible that man obeyed? This morning, we're going to talk about a key spiritual discipline. One of the things that I was introduced very early on in my Christian life while I was being discipled by crew, Dave tells me I shouldn't call it Campus Crusade for Christ anymore. It's crew, but it was Campus Crusade for Christ. And how to deal with temptation. Here's my question again. What is the only one of God's command, commands that man ever obeyed? And I will answer that at the end of my sermon. <clears throat> There's a magazine called Discipleship Journal. I think it's just online now, so I've tried to find it. It's put out by the Navigators. It's an organization, as I'm sure you're aware, of very serious Christians. The people who get this magazine are heavily into Bible memorization, Bible study. These are serious believers. And in this magazine some years ago, they posed this question to their readership. How do you think temptations rank in the lists of believers in general? Just looking across America, looking at the churches, looking at the state of Christianity, how do you think most Christians would list out temptations being at the highest, number one, and going down to the least in lower numbers? Take a, make a mental list for a moment. What would you imagine they would say? What is the primary, most difficult temptation and order them in, in rank, listen by rank, throughout evangelical Christianity? Here's what the readers of Discipleship Journal sent back in their survey. The number one sin that they saw in American Christianity amongst believers is materialism. And Jesus talked a great deal about money and about goods and the problem that man has in dealing with greed. It becomes idolatry. We exalt it to, to our God. That's very true. The second is pride. That's the proto-sin, as it's called by theologians. That's the sin of the devil. I will, in Isaiah 14, five I wills, where he basically comes up to the point where it says, I will be God, I will set myself on the most high. Then, of course, there's self-righteousness. The enemies of Jesus, the ones who eventually killed him, were the religious self-righteous. They are the ones that hated him the most. It's not a small thing. Laziness. Look at the Proverbs and do a study sometime on the word sluggard and what that means. <clears throat> and then there was a tie. Number five was tied with anger and sexual lust. Anger slash bitterness and sexual lust. Certainly a serious problem. Number six is envy. We want what others want. It violates the Ten Commandments. And of course, there's gluttony. Now, gluttony is kind of a sin we don't want to talk about. A fellow wrote a book years ago called Acceptable Sins in America, and that's one of them. In the ancients, it wasn't acceptable. They made a big deal about the sin of gluttony. They called it the seven deadly sins. Even going back in some of the earliest papyri and Greek writings that we can find, they deal with these issues because it was tied in with idol worship. And of course, lying. The devil's a liar. Next question is, how do you rank temptations in your life? And here is what the readers, these very serious Christians, in the navigator's uh, pool said about themselves. The number one sin that they personally were facing 
the number one temptation was not, again, the temptations they see everybody else facing, but that they were facing was number one, lust. It far outranked all others. Men, obviously, and some women too. And a second, a distant second, was gluttony. And they wrote, when are you most likely to face these temptations? Number one reason, the number one time that they feel most vulnerable is when they haven't spent time with God. I'm a retired pastor. Years ago, I mean, for years, think about it, I was paid to be good. Now I'm like the rest of you, I'm good for nothing. <laughs> so, but I had my nose in the word this morning, and tomorrow I'm gonna have my nose in the word again. You never go away from it. It's our fellowship with God. It's where we get our spiritual strength to live the kind of life he wants us to live. The other thing, the other issue they said was when you have not, when you've had, when you've not had enough rest, think about the temptation in the wilderness. When did Satan attack Jesus? 40 days without food. It was at the end when he was fatigued and physically weakened. That's when we are vulnerable to a temptation particularly. Then when life is difficult, you see the, the percentages there, 45%. During times of change, which always causes stress, 42%. After a significant spiritual victory, sometimes when people win something or some good windfall happens to them, they make stupid mistakes. And finally, when life is even going smoothly. Well, we are not left alone in the spiritual life. God provided us a plan, a way to deal with temptation. And he wrote about it in the book of James as well as some other, other, other materials, other books. It's interesting when you think about James, many scholars look at that as the first book written in the New, in New Testament. And the word for church, which some versions would translate, uh, in the NIV, it just says meeting, our meeting place. That is the Greek word synagogue. You're dealing with Jewish people who had a synagogue, the majority of the synagogue comes to Christ, and they don't change the name of the synagogue. It's a synagogue, but now we worship Yeshua Meshua, Jesus the Messiah. And in this book, he describes the challenges that they're facing. When we look at the book of Romans, that's a book of God's view of salvation looking down at man. It's about justification. It's about I'm saved. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we become saved, we are bought and paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he ain't ever going to let us go. We may sin, in fact, we will sin, there will be discipline, but there'll never be a divorce. They'll never be thrown out the door. God is our Heavenly Father. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're dealing with justification, I'm saved. In James, you're dealing with sanctification, I am being saved. I'm going through the process of being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's looking at salvation from man's point of view. In the beginning of this book, James talks about talking the struggle of trials. And he says a rather extraordinary passage, I think one of the most extraordinary in the New Testament. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Okay. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. And he goes on to explain how God uses trials to test and refine. And it says, blessed are those who stand up in a trial because after you've done so, you will receive the crown of life that God gives to all those who love him. That's the trials that God gives it allows. 
Now they make a switch from trials to tests, of temptations rather, a very different kind of animal. Now we're thinking, this is my relationship with God. He's working me through these trials. Now I'm feeling tempted to sin. That is not from God, as Julie read earlier. Early. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God does not tempt us, and God cannot be tempted by evil. But each one of us is tempted when by our own, what? Evil desire. We are dragged away and enticed. And then after sin is conceived, it eventually gives birth to death, an unholy birth. The first point of dealing with temptation is to realize it's on you, not God. God's not doing it to you. The deceiver, the tempter is doing it to you. You are doing it by your own internal desires. A friend of mine wrote a book on temptation years ago, and he related in it, in it a couple of stories. I thought I'd relate to you. One is about a little boy who would go swimming in this creek, and his mother was very concerned for his safety, and she warned him in no uncertain terms, you will not go swimming in that creek. Don't go in that creek. So the next day, he comes home from school, and his hair is all wet, and his face is wet, and his hands are wet, but his clothes are dry. I thought I told you not to go swimming in the creek. He said, it was, it was an accident. I fell in. I said, how come your clothes are dry? Well, I was walking by the creek, and so I took my clothes off just in case I fell in. That's what we do sometimes. We lure and deceive ourselves. He wrote a story about a, wo a woman taking the marital counseling classes from Frank Minrith and Paul Meyer. They were my teachers. And they introduced the problems that marriages have. And it was very surprising, I think, to all of us that the number one issue couples have in, in conflict resolution is over money. It's over finances. You usually have a spender and a saver. That's typically what happens. And all of us have to work that out in our marriages, how we're going to deal with that. And so he tells this story. This wife had a problem with being tempted to buy clothes, just destroy their, their family budget, destroy their ability to buy other things that are needed. And she would buy clothes after clothes. And her husband said, you got to stop doing this, honey. She said, but I'm so tempted. Well, he said, do what Jesus did. When you're tempted, quote a Bible verse at the devil if he tempts you. Well, what verse should I use? When Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, you know, use that one. So the next day, the husband comes home and the wife comes in carrying boxes and boxes of clothes. And he's furious. What did you do? I told you, quote scripture. She said, I did. The devil came and she look, he looks at me and she says, boy, that outfit looks great on you, darling. And I said, get thee behind me, Satan. And so he goes behind me and says, hmm, you look great from back here too. We deceive ourselves by our own internal evil desires to do things that are... In, that are ultimately to our harm. And Satan does not give gifts. And when Satan tempts us, he never lets us know the consequences. When you see these typical stories in movies, most of the time you don't see the consequences of sinful acts. So first of all, we gotta own what we do. It is on me, not on someone else. In all the years I was with Crusade and then got involved with some Navigator material, teaching it in my churches, uh, one of the key verses that they always had you memorize, and it did at Northern here, was this verse right here. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, I've memorized hundreds of Bible verses in my life. This is the hardest verse I ever had to memorize. 
In fact, I would be a little bit uncertain if I didn't put it up there, that I could even quote it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. I like that. That means the temptations I endure or that you endure are ordinary. We're ordinary people, and we have ordinary temptations. But then it goes on to say, and God is faithful. Well, I can believe that. God is faithful. But then look what it says. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Think about the implications of that for a moment. You mean, I'm never going to be tempted beyond what I can bear? That's what God promises us. And he goes on. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I think I had such a problem with memorizing that verse because of its implications and its conviction. Doesn't that convict you? That means that if you and I fall or slip, think about something or say something or do something that, is, that, that violates the holy character of God, what we're really saying is, God gave me this, allowed me to suffer this at least. I was tempted, but it was, wasn't from God. It was from the devil, from my own evil desire. And God kept it from growing so much that I couldn't bear it. He enabled me to bear it, but yet I sinned. And when I am tempted, he provided a way out, and I must have been walking right by the exit door. Never even bothered to look for it. But that's what the scripture says. We have to own that we are responsible for our temptations, that they're not from God, and we've got to look for that way out that God always promises there's going to be. And part of that way out, he goes on in the next passage, is, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. And he always uses the endearing phrase, my dear brothers. Uh, God is light. He's the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You notice in Jesus' talking in John 3, he says, men love the darkness and hate the light, therefore they will not come into the light. But a person who loves the God, loves the light, is going to come into it and is going to say, here I am, God, sins and all. I'm ready to be cleaned up by you. Mankind hides, God calls to light. And then he says, humble yourselves before the word planted in you. So when we think about this, God is telling us to change our focus. The good God, the good God of creation, he says, don't look at this world, don't look at your sin, don't look at your temptation, look at me. Martin Luther tells a story to his students in Luther's lectures. He wanted to teach his students how to deal with temptation. So he brought his dog in, and then he threw some meat on the floor in front of the students. And it's very interesting. The dog looked at him with complete and total attention, with unblinking eyes. He just looked at his master. And not until his master said it was okay did the dog go for the meat. That's how we deal with temptation. We don't look at the sin. We don't look at the temptation and resist it. We look at the God, our Savior, who gives us the power to flee from it. We look at the master. We look at the God who saves us, the God who calls us, the God who cleans us. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we own the sin, that we are the cause of it, and then we look to Jesus to help us deal with it. Then he goes on to say, don't fall prey basically to anger. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. 
The Bible doesn't say, don't be angry. Ephesians 4.26, in fact, says, be angry when there's something, in other words, worthy of being angry about. We are angry about sin. But it says, be angry, but do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't hang on to it. Don't embrace it. Don't hold it. Don't nurture it. When we do that and we hang on to our anger, the next verse in Ephesians 4.26 and 4.27 says, and do not give the devil a foothold. When you and I hold on to our malice and our anger, we're stepping out of the realm of the Prince of Peace and we're going into the realm of the Prince of Darkness when we hang on to our anger too much. You read 1 Peter, and they were dealing with difficult, painful persecutions. He says, get rid of all malice and anger. Get rid of these things. My father, who was a very noble man, my mother made the comment uh, to me about him one time, my father forgave everybody and anybody who ever stepped on him. And some people stepped on him very hard. He just forgave them, including his own father, my grandfather, who did not treat my father very well. Right up to the very end, there was never reconciliation Though my father did everything he could to create that, that atmosphere of reconciliation. My father was a happy man. My father was a joyful man. My father was not troubled with malice, not troubled with anger. Let it go. The implication of James there is that his readers, his members of his synagogue, his meeting place, they were angry at God because they thought God was the source of their temptations. And James is saying, no, he's not. You are. Get rid of your anger. Get rid of your anger towards others. Then it gets practical. So we, we change our, our attitude. We realize that we are responsible, not God. Uh, we look to God. Our focus is on God, not ourselves, not our sin. And then... We get rid of those kinds of things that, that, that practically drag us down. He says, get rid of all the moral feel, filth in your life. James uh, 1.21 says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Years ago, when I first interned in a church in Dallas, Texas, Fellowship Bible Church, we had a couple of elders in there that were very well thought of. They were the Dons, the two Dons. And I remember them telling this story while they were in these elder meetings. He said, I, I'm going to work, and there's this, this billboard there, and it's just so suggestive. It just bothers me. I realized I had to find a way to drive to work to go around that sign so I wouldn't have to see it. Another one of the Dons said, I was interviewing a personal secretary. He was an executive in a company, a high, high position, and as he was interviewing these different uh, candidates, he had this one woman who just gave him a bad vibe. She wasn't particularly beautiful, but there was something about her that he knew was just not going to be good. He might have hired her other, other than that because she was qualified, but he thought, I'm not going to hire this person. Get away from things that are going to cause you to stumble. Get away from things that are going to hurt you. Get rid of everything in your life that can bring you harm. Uh, in a smaller way, but an important way dealing with greed, not dealing with lack of trust of God, I would say, in his provision. We overextended our credit when we were younger, and I was primarily the guilty party. So we had a little ceremony and did plastic surgery and cut up our credit cards. You know, 
We had, and we got over it. We became responsible. That was many, that was 40 years ago. We've been fine since then. Get rid of anything that gets in your way and stump, makes you to stumble and uh, fail in your walk with Christ. And how do you do that? Well, you gotta humbly accept the word planted in you. That's what James 121b says. In the verses above it, he gives these imageries of, of birth about sin, where once, sin is once an evil desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Temptation, if you embrace it and if you don't deal with it, will destroy your life. I don't know the history of this particular church, but I know the history of the churches I've come from, and I've seen believers, even some close to me, utterly destroy their lives by not dealing with temptation properly. So it gives that imagery, and then in the next verse, he talks about, we've been given, a couple verses later, we've been given a new birth with, a, with the word of God planted in you. This imagery of a holiness, a, a Christ-likeness, the spiritual birth of our lives, so we become born again. And then he deals again with this idea of humbly accepting the word planted in you. And that conjures up the Lord's teaching on the parable of the seed. In Luke 8, where he's relating this to the crowds and the people that were coming to him town after town. And after he tells them this parable, and he does it in kind of ambiguous, kind of not crystal clear ways, his disciples asked him, Master, what does this parable mean? And Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom, but to others I speak in parables. In another place, he says, because they won't accept what I'm saying. So he says it in this parabolic way, which is a common teaching mode. He said, the seed is the word of God. That's the gospel. That's all my words about growing and walking with me. And that's planted in you. And he goes and talks about the different kinds of places. You're familiar with it. The seed that falls on the rock stands for those who receive the word with joy when they hear it. And they believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. That's what James is talking about. People are tested in the first part of his James, and some of them just fall away. I've had people very close to me get very excited about Jesus Christ, go through a period of testing, and just take a nosedive straight into the ground. Very, very sad and very, very tragic. Then the other seed is a seed that falls among the thorns. And they grow up with the plants, and they choke the plants. And Jesus describes that as people being choked by life's worries, of riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. And then he goes and talks about the good soil. But the seed that falls in the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. And listen what he says after that. Who hear the word, but they don't just hear it. And James carries this line in the next verse as well. Do not merely deceive yourselves. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Jesus says in that parable to see they hear the word and they retain it. They remember it. That's why I'm a big proponent of Bible memorization for the purpose of assimilating that word into your spiritual bloodstream and letting that word become who you are. So you, you retain it, and then it goes on to say, and by persevering, you produce a crop. That's how you live a successful Christian life. That's how you make your heart, not rocky soil, not soil filled with thorn bushes, but a soil that is filled with the Holy Spirit. You open your heart up to his word and he will make you a good soil because that's on us. You can make yourself into good soil by letting the seed of the word planted in you 
you have to water it. You have to read, you have to pray, you have to, you have to have prayer, you have to memorize some key verses. Escape from temptation. So how do you overcome temptation? What are some practical things you can do? The readers of Discipleship Journal said, pray about it. Early on in my life, when I was around some particularly gifted people, I thought, you know, I can't do all these things at seminary that some of these guys can do, but I can do one thing, I can pray. And I shared with you in a sermon about my second sermon, I think it was, the spiritual markers. And I wrote these things down, I'm so glad I did, back in the 70s, and periodically write again. And I can go back and see the places where God really entered our lives and gave us grace and did remarkable, life-changing things for us. So pray. Pray when you are tempted by something. And avoid tempting situations, like the dons, the elders I told you about. Something bothered them, or a person bothered them. I've seen a woman say the same thing to me. You get involved in a situation, you realize something is not good here, and the right thing to do is just to walk. In our everyday parlance, we use these very ungodly, unscriptural things. We talk about fleeing the devil and resisting, to te- resisting temptation. That's the polar opposite of what God tells us to do. God tells us, fight the devil, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And regarding temptation, you don't sit and stare at temptation in the eyes. You get out of Dodge. You do like the Dons did. You take a different road. You don't hire this person. This woman that I'm thinking of right now in ministry walked away from a situation she was involved in because this was, she saw that something was very bad was about to happen. You avoid things that are going to take you down. And you read and study the scriptures. Again, I'm retired, but I have my nose in the book this morning. I will have my nose in the book tomorrow because I need that spiritual encouragement, that spiritual re-energizing every single day. And then you need to be accountable to somebody. I was taught this years ago, and I embraced it. Author Franklin uh, Jones wrote this, and my friend uh, wrote it in his book about temptation. Nothing makes it easier to resist temptation than a proper upbringing, a sound set of, uh, of, of values, and witnesses. You notice what Jesus says in John 3. Men love the darkness and hate the light. So what do they do? They go in the darkness. They cover their faces up with masks, and they do these evil things. But a Christian comes into the light and say, guys, I'm having a problem. I've been involved in accountability situations with men for years. And we would ask each other questions. And I'll get to those questions in a moment. The other thing is memorizing scripture. But I never memorized a Bible verse just to memorize a Bible verse. I memorized it again to meditate on it, to let it reprogram my 100 billion brain neurons that God put in our heads and make me come out the way he intended me to come out to change my spiritual life. In fact, there's a good chance if you come here next Sunday, you're going to hear a sermon on biblical meditation. Unless, of course, there's the rapture, and then you'll have to meet here without me. (laughs) Then there's engaging in spiritual warfare. One of the names of the devil is the tempter. He's out to bring you down. And the devil never gives any gifts. When the devil tempts people, he never shows them the consequence. He shows the drunk getting higher, the drug, drug person you know, feeling good, not the downer that follows. The illicit relationship that they get involved in, 
not the pain that follows. And I could tell you a lot of stories about seeing very, very painful things in people's lives. But on a positive side, I will tell you this, God can clean you up no matter how dirty you get. I've had two people come into my church in New Jersey who lived very godless lives. Uh, one had been a stripper and a prostitute, came to know Christ, and went out into the mission field. God can clean people up. There's the Rahabs of the Bible. There's a woman in John 4. God cleans people up. Some people say none of these things help. That kind of person who says doing all these godly things don't help you, that person has lost hope. In my family, my wife's family, in Grace Church, in Gladstone, in our church in New Jersey, we saw people commit suicide, even young people in two situations. People reach a certain level of hopelessness. I can't escape. The only escape I have is to end it all. Now, I think most people don't go that far, but many people go to a sense of hopelessness and never get out of it. That's, again, why I think it's so important to have that scripture in your lives, to meditate on it, to pray it into your life, to, gain, to help gain that hope, that encouragement, that spiritual strength to live the kind of life God wants you to live. Here's some accountability questions. These are from Chuck Swindoll and uh, Chuck Colson from many years ago. And my men's group and I, we use these words to, amongst ourselves. The first one, are you walking with the Lord? Are you praying with your, with your spouse? Do you do anything that you shouldn't have, or did you do anything that you shouldn't have done? Are you having any inappropriate relationships with someone from the opposite sex? Do you watch something you shouldn't have watched? Have you been honest with your money? And I love the last one. Are you lying to me? So I went for years with these guys asking these questions. We even had computer programs where if they looked at something, somebody else saw it on their computer, which is available. You can look on the online services to see how you can do that. And I had a couple of times where I said these questions and I said, are you lying to me? And he said, no. And then a couple of weeks later, they came back to me and said, yes, I was lying to you. But you know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They already know it's wrong. I didn't beat them up. John 3.17 says, For Christ came in the world not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved with him. Okay, brother, I'm praying for you. And we are best friends to this very day and will continue to be so for eternity. So how do you do that? You change your thought. I am the reason why I'm being tempted. I'm giving in to it. You change your, your focus from yourself or the sin to Christ. You get rid of the anger that's in your life. Let it go. Be angry, but only for a short period of time for something that deserves to be angry about. And then pragmatically, just do practical things to avoid temptation. You need to flee temptation. You don't resist it. You get away from it. And of course, get somebody who's accountable in your life. Now, the question to ponder. What is the only command that God ever gave that man obeyed? Genesis 1.28. God said to them and blessed them, be fruitful and multiply. The only one we obeyed. 